they put it on in two with you know in the extravagant style. I mean, the food, the bo the booze, the coffee was spot on. I I, I really can't fault it, uh, and I'm certainly returning uh, next year. Hello and welcome to the Instec London podcast. This is Matthew Grant, one of the partners at Instec London. And for this episode, we are bringing you a double bill. First of all, I'm talking to my fellow partner, Robin Mertens, about his experience at the recent DIA event in Amsterdam, talking about the highlights and some of the disappointments from that event. After that, I'm speaking to Dan White, managing partner at 90 Consulting. Dan and his team have prepared a paper which examines the direct relationship between insurance innovation and company value. We know Dan and the team very well and are very grateful for their support as one of the gold sponsors for Instec London. So Robin, you and Paolo were at DIA in Amsterdam last week. I was left here uh, holding the fort. Judging by your suntan, you didn't don't look as though you spent three days inside a dark gas holder, but you certainly came back very enthused by the event. I was last there a couple of years ago. So you know, what was the highlight for you this year? Uh, it's come on in leaps and bounds in the last two years. I thought this event was just terrific. And uh, as you've spotted, there was two days of unbroken sunshine. The first event they held, which was out in Barcelona, was excellent. It just it does seem to have built from there onwards. So uh, what, were you, what were the highlights for you of the, the couple of days that you were there? I'm starting with lowlights. Uh, the um, first slot, the, the big um, you know, crowd pleaser, was Daniel Schreiber at Lemonade. Uh, and uh, it's a huge venue. Uh, I reckon there were over 1,000 people in the room. Uh, and I'm sorry to say he rather disappointed we went to hear about the opening of the new uh, European centre in Germany. There was no information about that. Um, there was a replay of the, the standard stuff about um, uh, being truly disruptive and 21st century companies being the success stories of the 21st century. Uh, but, but I really felt there was a lack of detail. It was slightly pitched at the wrong audience in the sense that they were very well-informed insurance-specific audience in there. Uh, it was very generalistic. I think it almost could have been pitched to undergraduates. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that, that although he's a PR expert, I, I thought it was a PR, a PR blip for them. Um, people will fill in the gaps of, in, in, the, in the information that they don't give. Uh, and it was some ammunition for his detractors, I felt. Well, Dan, if you're one of our many listeners in the US, uh, I guess you'd be welcome to come to an Instate London night and have Robin Mertens uh, cross-examine you on stage to see what's going on behind the curtain at Lemonade. So after that, though, there were definitely a few things there that I know that tickled your fancy because you've, uh, you've been talking about them uh, quite a lot since then. No, I learned a lot. Uh, uh, I think in terms of macro trends, it's quite clear that... Um, uh, to the extent that I thought this sort of insurtech disruption thing was led by the US and the UK, continental Europe has completely caught up. Uh, I don't see, and if it may even have overtaken on some analysis, um, th there's a huge amount of activity. Uh, a lot remains, as it does here, around um, engagement, uh, usability, uh, you know, apps, the ability to buy and sell distribution improvements rather than anything uh, deeply disruptive. 
Um, but but I think that's uh, become the way. I, I don't think I heard the word disruption once. I mean, it's it doesn't seem to be the mantra. Once Daniel had, from Lemonade had finished, uh, it's much more now about providing solutions to insurers uh, to use in partnership uh, rather than in in deep disruption of the insurance industry. So that sounds quite retail focused and, and personalised. How about on the, the commercial commercial specialty side? Is there much much you saw there? No, um, I th- I think that London remains uh, indisputably the centre for that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that if you're um, only doing um, US liability business, uh, you can probably uh, spare yourself a trip to, to Amsterdam. Clearly, there are lots of people on the data front doing uh, stuff that's relevant. Uh, we have by far the biggest concentration of knowledge and short tech uh, startups here. Um, what I think in London, but I think what we're starting to lose is um, ambition. Uh, I had a good and very informative chat with Florian Greo, the uh, ex-Axler investor with his own fund. Now he made the observation that he thinks that um, the biggest opportunities lie in uh, full-stack digital, which is really only happening in Germany. Uh, and he thinks that the new products coming out of France, often weather-related, parametric, are far more innovative than anything he's seeing out of the UK. And he's looking to uh, to investments which really change the game, and he hasn't seen much from the UK that would interest him over the last 12 months. Yeah, well, he should listen to our uh podcast with Graham Ellett at Azure because they have built the full stack digital as you as you well know and I think what's going to be really interesting in the next 12 months is the the extent which you get this interoperability between different parts of the technology stack here and actually to the extent you can start to plug those together and either as a single insurance company or a separate entity start to create those from all the pieces that are out there but it's interesting to hear that's happening in in Europe, even if it's not happening in the UK. And what about outside Europe? Did you see anything interesting uh, that came out of any of the other areas? I mean, the US you've talked about with Lemonade, but what about beyond the sort of traditional insurtech areas of US and, and Europe? The most uplifting thing I saw, and this is um, a sort of weird sense of logic, uh, but I uh, met a, uh, a couple of charming Japanese gentlemen from a company called Hokan who told me uh, what it's like to be a Japanese insurtech. Um, and it sounds like some sort of medium form of hell to me. There are five in the whole of Japan. Uh, they're all run by very young, uh, under-30s entrepreneurs because they're the only ones who can afford to take the, uh, to take the risk. Uh, the regulatory environment, the fundraising environment, uh, the, the kind of legal environment are all uh, stacked against you. Um, he thinks that it's almost impossible to uh, disrupt Japanese insurance from outside. It'll have to come from um, within. Uh, and he says that, the, I mean, he, he marvels at how easy it is to set up a company here, uh, the relationship we have with the regulators, uh, how the legal and, and um, you know, financial uh, mechanics enable uh, innovation so, so smoothly. Uh, and I think it explains why there's so much uh, Japanese inward investment activity in the UK right now. All the life insurance companies are over here looking at uh, opportunities, looking for things to invest in. Obviously, we've had the big M&A 
splurge of the last few years. I think the insurance companies accept that if they're going to innovate, they're going to have to do it themselves. And that's a very different dynamic to what the one we have here. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're talking about Mitsui, Tokyo Marine, Sompo, you know, some coming in, buying up a lot of the London market companies in there. So, yeah, interesting to see it's happening from the, the ground level. Did you manage to sign them up for our uh, Global InsureTech Alliance as, as, a, as a Japanese uh, outpost? Uh, they offered. Uh, my more pressing concern was to ensure that I could get some decent hospitality in Tokyo when I go to the World Cup on the 1st of October. And, and I've now got the opportunity to don't tell the tax man to put some of that on expenses. So, so that was my immediate concern. Well, good. That's part of the reason we do this stuff. Uh, and then looking forward, what's ha- what else is happening with uh, either events or well, yeah, when's the DIA next event coming up? Uh, they will have Munich um, uh, in in uh, September October. I don't know exact dates. I, I, I wouldn't have uh, having done Amsterdam. I won't go to that. The one that attracts my attention is they're going to try and break into the. Uh, the Asian market, they go to Hong Kong in December. They've got a really uh, exciting t- joint proposition with the cyberport out there. Um, and I think that will be, if they do it with the same uh, panache that they did this one uh, and can tie in some um, of the Chinese and, and Asian Pacific markets, uh, I would have thought that's a cracker. And I think they would get a lot of support from, from, the, from those markets locally too. Good. Well, well done to Reggie and the Roger and Roger and the team again for putting on another excellent event. Maybe we can get them over at some point and uh, and also have them up on stage and tell us how they do it and share a few of their secrets. Dan, welcome to the Instead London podcast. You clearly know us well as one of our major sponsors, which we very much. Appreciate. Before we dump, jump into the podcast itself, just be helpful just to know a little bit about how do you yourself gather information about what's happening in, in the industry? Oh, thank you, Matthew. Uh, mainly, really, it's through conversations with the folk that, that you and I spend our time talking with, um, not least of which actually is the opportunity to network with people at the Instech London events, which we're grateful for. But it's, it's speaking with directors of innovation and the like across the insurance sector. Good. Well, it's clearly been successful for you because you have know, companies that are out there, there are many claiming to help with innovation, but you've got a very uh, strong set of marquee clients. Would like to be helpful just to talk a bit about those in a minute, maybe a success story from one of them. But you know, how do you differentiate yourself when you're out there talking to potential clients about what you do? I think fundamentally it's really quite simple. It's the, the intersection of insurance as a sector and innovation as a practice. No one else that we know of is specializing in that intersection, in specializing in that particular um, crucible or, or, or that point uh, of interaction. So insurance innovation, that's the, the fundamental thing that we think makes us stand apart. Um, in terms of how we work, there's probably some differentiation there. We're, we're very much practitioners rather than PowerPointers. And um, we're also very strong on putting the customer in the room, the beneficiary of the idea, in the room with us. Um, helping us innovate uh, with the clients. Yeah, I guess I'd also add to that, having been in the room with you a few times, talking to clients, prospective clients, you've got a very clear framework that you use when you lay out how to tackle innovation. And I, I think the paper, the white paper we're talking about today was one area where you've identified some of the challenges in insurance companies. But but what specifically you know, 
gave you the motivation to spend time preparing this, this paper? So the white paper really um, came out of a, a, just a, a, an innate curiosity. Um, we did wonder as a, as a consultancy working with the insurance sector on innovation practice whether we could describe or point to a strong correlation between innovation within insurance businesses and their uh, subsequent financial performance and company value growth. Obviously, if there was a correlation, that'd be fantastic for us, and we could point to that and, and, and encourage clients to spend money on innovation. So we went into this with, just with a genuine curiosity, looking for a correlation, but um, uh, starting really with the, the academic research out there, uh, of which there's a meaningful amount um, to look at the, the links between innovation or R&D and uh, shareholder value. And one of the findings that you had on that was that of the top 1,000 companies in there that are investing in innovation, there wasn't a, sh it wasn't a single insurance company in that list. Was that a surprise to you when you looked at the results of the survey? <laughs> Part, partly and partly not. So this comes from a, um, a survey uh, from 2018, the Global Innovation 1000, and it took um, a thousand public companies around the world with the largest R&D investment figures. So the top 1,000 corporate innovators, if you will. And yeah, not a single one of those um, was from the insurance sector. So we dug uh, deeper into that. And um, to a degree, I think there's some, some veracity in, in this finding in as much as uh, it would appear that insurers are not, just simply not innovating um, as much, or not spending as much on innovation as other sectors. Now, I'll give you one example here that, that from the report, AXA Group, um, they state in their annual report they're spending $200 million uh, per year on innovation. That's 0.002% of their revenue. You compare that with the, the internet and digital marketing retail uh, companies within this, this global 1000 list, or indeed the IT services um, companies within that list. Those are spending 12% of their revenue on R&D. That's 6,000 times more as a stated percentage that um, these other sorts of sectors are spending. Um, and those two example sectors I've given you, they're not by any means the, the most, uh, the ones who are spending most in that space. Um, let me nuance all that by saying that there's a lot of, we work day in, day out in, uh, in innovation within insurance, and we see a lot of day-to-day -day change happening my, my suggestion to you would be a couple of things, Matthew. One, that bolder innovation is still the exception. So the kind of innovation that tends to make the, 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 the annual accounts and reports, that still gen tends to be the exception rather than the norm within insurance. Whereas in, in other sectors, it's a little bit more normal. Um, the second is that I think insurers are guilty of not calling a spade a spade in a space. And so there's probably spend that they could be describing as innovation um, that they're not at the moment. If you look at the, I mean, like the technology companies, I mean, they are by definition big because they're in, in the top 1,000, but in many cases they are still, their growth is coming about because they're building new products, they're going into new markets. I mean, to do that, they actually need to have the, uh, the investment and the innovation to do that, whereas from insurance companies, that's a little bit less the case because those markets are pretty mature with the exception of maybe things like cyber, which is still very small in the, in the absolute terms. We see a, a significant variation 
across the clients that we work for, and that's um, that the sorts of clients we're working for, uh, people like Ali and Zaxa, Zurich, Hiscox, Direct Liner, a client, and Looper, and so on. Um, we see a, a significant variation in their appetites and their, their behaviors and, and their spend levels on innovation. What we see in our day-to-day work also points to the fact that insurers actually, we think, should be spending not necessarily more. So the, 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 the white paper does not find a correlation between spend on innovation and company value in all cases. What it does find is uh, a strong link between effectiveness of innovation and company value growth. So there is a link, but it's more nuanced than just throw money at it. Um, there's a, a, a strong um, need for discipline in innovation, a structured methodology and an approach to innovation rather than just uh, throwing good money after bad. And so in the, in the companies you've worked with, what would be good examples where you see that they've got effective practices for innovation? There are a number of things that we could draw out there. Um, one of the things would be not using the same innovation model, the same innovation operating model for all types of innovation. Um, certain classes of innovation require certain types of innovation operating models. So the, the, the kind of much lauded lab approach, for example, in our opinion and in our experience, um, is suitable really for, for what we call Horizon 3, so quite significant, disruptive, high-risk, um, highly unlikely ideas. The development of those sorts of ideas works well in a, in a dedicated lab, whereas ideas that are more about <clears throat> developing new products for existing markets or taking uh, existing products to new markets or indeed process innovation, those sorts of innovations are best done as close as possible to the heart of the business. I suppose it maybe is it too early to point to a company that does that horizon scanning where you've been involved, help them look at their horizon, and you've got you collectively have got some way closer to reaching that horizon, or is it either just takes so many years that you know, they can they can they can narrow their focus, but it's, we're not going to know if it's going to be successful for a, for a while yet. A lot of the so-called horizon three stuff, um, it's often done behind closed doors. Um, a lot of what we call horizon two, so slightly less ambitious ideas are often dressed up as Horizon 3 ideas. It's actually some of the reinsurers like Munich Re who we think are probably doing most stuff in that, that, that Horizon 3 space. But as an observation for you, Matthew, what we've seen over the years is that things that started in Horizon 3, think um, Internet of Things, think um, self-driving cars, those things have, have started dropping through, through Horizon 3 into Horizon 2 and things like IoT. Many of those applications are probably Horizon 1 type applications now. Yeah, I guess back on your point about what, it, what constitutes effective innovation and also where the money's spent, you know, there may be a case, or there will be cases, the way you just described it, where examples of applications that may not pay off and fall until sometime in the future, actually it's worthwhile doing something sooner because companies can learn from that, they can get some understanding of what the challenges are going to be, they shouldn't expect to pay off straight away, but it's part of a strategy which builds over time, as opposed to some maybe slightly different types of innovation that have got a very uh, sort of near-term focus in terms of delivery and have to pay their way in a, in a shorter time, time mm. frame. Um, one of the, the findings in the, in the white paper is that one of the things that, that um, denotes an effective innovator is an organisation that, that very strongly prioritises ideas into its innovation pipeline, which is kind of what you're describing, so how do you pick which, which ideas do you place bets on. The benefit of a structured innovation process is that it allows you 
to explore, to develop learnings very quickly without spending inordinate amounts of time or money. Um, so it actually allows you to, to explore a, a reasonably broad range of ideas up to a point. At that point, you can decide whether to part then revisit in two years, five years, or indeed actually accelerate, move through prototype pilots and scale. Um, so organizations that are really smart around that, that innovation pipeline management are the ones who are probably doing this kind of thing best. And in terms of the paper itself, do you have a kind of ideal uh, reader for the paper who you invested time to build it, you're sending it out now to people, uh, who, who do you want to pick up, pick up this paper and read it and then come back to you and presumably engage you on some work? Because we're involved so closely in the insurance innovation game, um, we think that this is going to resonate with anyone who's involved in that space. So any heads of innovation, uh, any directors of innovation, chief innovation officers um, in the insurance sector, this will give them um, additional insight. It'll help them with the kind of nuanced approach to funding of innovation. Um, but I'd suggest it's also uh, a, a must read for, for CFOs within insurance organizations as they try to work out how much budget to allocate to their business's innovation function. Take a sort of step maybe beyond the paper itself, but more generally, a question that comes up a lot is, to what extent can insurers innovate themselves versus they have to look externally for innovation and partner or you know, potentially even acquire companies to do that? As you, as you did the work for the paper, were there any findings that suggested that you know, one model is better than the other for insurance companies? Yes, so um, some of what came through in the research was that there is a, uh, a strong advantage to partnering and outsourcing in innovation. It's one of the ways that um, the, these kind of global thousand, the, these, these big and effective innovation uh, drivers, um, how they actually perform. One of the examples we cite is, is Apple and the App Store. And what they've done is they've outsourced innovation to the app developers, so this enormous community of, of developers who actually do most of the innovation. Apple have provided an ecosystem within which this outsourced um, uh, set of hundreds of thousands of developers can actually innovate. It's Apple that actually gets the advantage rather than the app developers in principle. So that kind of, um, that kind of approach is true within the insurance sector we found. Uh, there is an advantage to partnering, to outsourcing. Um, uh, clearly we see that working quite well in the insure tech scene. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily draw a very close line here around the acquisition space. So just buying a company, we've seen time and again, you know, insurers buy companies thinking they can absorb their innovation. And time and time again, the, the bigger parent tends to, to dominate and drown out the innovative quality of the smaller business that they've acquired. And Dan, if anybody wants to get hold of this white paper, what's the best way to find it? So the uh, simplest way is uh, visit our website, go to the research section, um, pop your details in there and we'll send it to you. Right, okay. Let's just move on a bit to your, your announcement uh, at one of our events a few weeks ago and you've been talking about this more broadly about your maturity audit that you're doing for insurance companies. Can you just talk a bit about how that works? Yeah, sure. So this, this um, in many ways came out of the work we do with, uh, with insurers like Zurich and Travelers where we're trying to move them from position A on a gradient of, of innovation maturity, the culture of innovation, to, to a position B. 
Um, so if we're trying to move them from A to B on that, on that gradient, the question is how do we um, draw a line in the sand and say this is our starting point? Uh, so about a year ago, we, we examined all of, the, uh, all of the, the research, the best practice thinking on this space, and we designed seven different dimensions of effective um, uh, innovation maturity within insurance specifically, and have built that into a maturity model, an innovation maturity uh, index. Um, so we're starting to run that with a number of insurers, and that's generating some interesting results. Um, some of the examples we've seen here, Matthew, we've seen um, an insurer where um, we found very strong differences between how management thought they were doing innovation, or how well management thought they were doing innovation on one hand, and how well the staff thought they were doing innovation. Mark, market difference. Um, we also have seen examples of um, things like process discipline really lacking within organizations and, and being a particular uh, gap that it's reasonably easy to solve, actually. You can plug in an innovation process to solve that. But that's fundamentally it. We're building an industry benchmark as we, as we um, run the rating process on a number of insurers. It's quite an easy thing. And if, um, if anyone's interested in that, um, please do reach out. The findings from doing the benchmarking study, and I see we might have to anonymize some of it or all of it, but you plan to make that publicly available so you can at least show what the, the distributions are and, and a few more of you know, hopefully some of the positive as well as the uh, negative uh, examples you're finding of what's happening in the industry. We'll offer it primarily to the people who actually um, go through the, the maturity audit process with us. And when we spoke about AM Best and what they're doing before, you, I think you were generally supportive of it, but you had some uh, observations or concerns about how that might be misused. Yeah, we did. I mean, I think it's a, it's a great thing because it recognizes the, the, the correlation that, that, that this white paper actually explores in more detail. It recognizes the correlation between companies' financial performance and stability on one hand and, and innovation as an input to that. So it's a good thing, um, and we've, we've told them we think so. Um, our concerns around it are, um, one, we think it could probably be gamed. We think it's actually, it could generate false positives. Second, we think it's, it, it doesn't, it tends to um, score highly, it generates a high score for organizations who are doing things that are very disruptive, rather than for, think, for organizations who are doing lots of small change really well. And um, experience tells us that the insurers, it's the insurers in the latter camp who actually perform best, who get the benefits from innovation, those who are doing lots and lots of smaller innovations rather than betting the mortgage on the big one. Um, as a heads up for your listeners, Matthew, we are working at the moment on a, uh, a report that, we, that we're naming at the moment, the Idea Pulse. Um, and this is an interesting piece of work. So we're, we're looking at 250 large global insurers, and we're looking at their innovation efforts. And we're looking to, to categorize, codify, sort of segment those, those efforts to try to understand what is, what is the zeitgeist of innovation and insurance at the moment. What are the big ideas? What are the recurring themes? And also, interestingly, we think, um, if, you, if you imagine a bit of a heat map, uh, where, where all the kind of hot spots are, where lots of people are doing the same sort of thing, in those cold spots, between the warmer spots, are there missed opportunities that insurers aren't seeing at the moment that we might be able to pick and help insurers to turn into competitive advantage? So that, that um, piece of work is underway at the moment. Um, and then the other thing I think it's worth just mentioning, Matthew, is um, we've just, um, 90 is a, a social enterprise, a, a for-purpose business, 
and just last week we were able to um, allocate our, uh, our our donation for 2018 to a set of social causes. So we give 90% of our profits to charity, that's the name. And um, last week we allocated that funding. And a whole chunk of that has gone into micro-insurance initiatives in developing countries, but also into poverty innovation. Uh, event. So labs, effectively, that use innovation technique to solve poverty um, issues in developing countries. So really encouraged that we've been able to, to create a really strong link between where we make our money in insurance innovation and where we give our money uh, in these sorts of initiatives. Well, congratulations, because I know you've got a goal of being able to give uh, a billion, I can't remember if it's dollars or sterling, but say at least at least dollars. <laughs> Either way, it sounds big. To, to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to good, uh, good funding. And, and certainly, I think microinsurance is interesting, not just because it's bringing insurance into the developing world, but actually there's a lot to be, a lot to be learned for everybody about how you create that efficiency when you, you've got insurance premiums in the sense and, and can't afford to have expensive mm. um, claims and other things. So I'd be really interested to learn more about that as it comes out. Um, well, Dan, yeah, thanks for carving out some time. It's been great to catch up on a Thank you. few areas. And yeah, look forward to working with you going forward on yeah, more of the initiatives as they come out. Thank you, Matthew. If you're interested in more about what we're up to at Instec London, you can find us on www.instec.london. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do add some comments wherever you're listening and forward it on to anybody else you think might find it interesting. <laughs>